of the things that have happened throughout uh, this past week, and I'm sure you have heard of uh, some of the tremendous events that have happened in the Midwest, particularly more Oklahoma, when a uh, Category 5 tornado ripped through that, uh, that suburb of Oklahoma City, devastating that town, leaving a swath of destruction nearly two miles wide and killing, as far as the latest numbers that I could find, goes 24 people, including seven children in the various schools that collapsed as the children were taking cover. Uh, just a tremendous um, event in their lives, and life will, as you can imagine, never be the same again. And I was thinking back to um, the events that have unfolded even just in the last six months or so in our nation. Not only this, but a little over a month ago, we had two bombs explode at the finish line of the Boston Marathon, killing three people, including a young boy, and injuring 264 bystanders. And in the ensuing pursuit of the suspects, the suspects they knew about at the time, 16 police officers injured, one officer killed, and one of the, one of the uh, suspects killed before they finally apprehended the uh, second. And just two days later, April 17th, in West Texas, fertilizer plant exploded in a massive explosion. I've seen some of the, the footage of that explosion. It's, it's, uh, it's incredible to watch. Um, killing, as far as I know, 15 people and injuring 200 and damaging homes around the area. And of course, we could go back and even take a look at the events that happened just before Christmas, December 14th of uh, 2012 in Sandy Hook, Connecticut, where 20 young children, six adults, killed the hands of a lone gunman who took it upon himself to end their lives and then end his own. You just think about those things for a moment and we're sobered, aren't we? You start considering the reality of facing these people. Life will never be the same again. So you think about parents who are waiting to hear about whether or not their child had been found in the rubble and whether or not they would be on the casualty list or on the survivor list. You think about people who did survive just this past week. They've got nothing left. No earthly possessions, nothing to call their own now. They're, they're on their own. They might have escaped, but they have escaped with nothing but the shirt on their back. And where does life begin again for them? Those realities facing them, families who've literally lost everything, homeless, possessionless. And I know some of you even have experienced difficulties of your own loss of a loved one, loss of a child, disillusionment of a marriage, loss of a job and the anxiety of not knowing what is going to happen in the future? What does the future hold for me? What does the future hold for my family? My wife and I experiencing that same kind of distress and anxiety just, um, just before Christmas as we were wondering what was going to happen with our little one when we were waiting. And, and he is doing fine, but in the midst of all that, we didn't know. And it begs a simple question, really. How does transcendent worship how does that take place 
with reality like that, with a family who loves God, who has been saved by God, but who has experienced the kind of devastation that has occurred in places like Moore and in West Texas and in Sandy Hook? How does transcendent worship look like for them? How do you worship God in the midst of catastrophe and make it real and go beyond the superficial? How does it look? That's the question I want to answer because it's a question all of us need to answer. I think um, not many of Job's friends actually said something that was very wise, but one of the things that one of his friends did say in Job 5.7 was, man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. And he's absolutely right. You're born into this world. You're born for trouble. It's the reality of life. It is inevitable. And even Jesus said that. John 16.33, he says, in the midst of other things, in the world you have, not will have, but you have tribulation. Nobody's immune from it. Nobody in this room. Nobody's exempt. Nobody gets a free pass. Not even believers. Everybody will experience trouble of some kind or another. Whether or not it's at the the level that we see on TV in these kind of national disasters and these um, natural things or or if it's just the loss, and not, not just, if it is the loss of a loved one a child, friend. How do you worship after that? How do you come before God? How do you come to a service like this morning without weighing on your heart and do more than just put a smile on your face and answer the question when somebody asks, how are you doing? And answer more than just, I'm doing okay. How do you worship God, the transcendent God? with transcendent worship. We find our answer in the Psalms, of course, in the Psalms. I invite you to turn to Psalm 89. We're going to be looking at the last, uh, the last stanza of this psalm, verses 49 through 51. This is an incredible psalm. It's my favorite psalm. And so it's, it's no trouble to preach on it this morning. But it should come as no shock that as a psalm, This is, in and of itself, an act of worship. That as the psalmist was penning the words of Psalm 89, he was penning by the very inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as the Spirit carried him along, as as Peter talks about in 2 Peter 1, carrying him along to, to write exactly what God wanted him to write, and what he penned was part of the hymn book of the nation Israel. They would turn to this hymn and worship Yahweh with this psalm. And you can see it. It's all about worship, as you can even see in verse 1. Take a look at verse 1 for a moment before we get to our text. In verse 1, it reads, I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. By the way, I'm preaching out of the the New American Standard, if any of you are scratching your heads, saying, this is a little strange for my version. I'm, I'm using the NAS. Uh, it's just a version I've used for a long time. I can't quite shake it yet, uh, so bear with me with that. But uh, it's on your screen, uh, the NAS, if you need it. This is in verse 1. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. 
To all generations, I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. So you get a sense right off the bat of what is on this man's mind. The superscription tells us that this is a psalm written by a man named Ethan the Ezraite. And we don't really know who that was. There's a couple Ethans mentioned in Scripture. 1 Kings 4.31 talks about a wise man that was uh, living at the time of Solomon. Solomon was even wiser than this man. It could be a Levite. 1 Chronicles 15.19 talks about a Levite and a musician that was appointed as a musician in the court of David could be either one of those. It could be somebody else. We don't really know who it was, but we know what was on his mind because he talks about the loving kindness of the Lord. In fact, he uses that that word, loving kindness, seven times throughout this psalm. That gives you a theme. And the faithfulness of God, also used seven times throughout this psalm. He has God's loyal love. He's got God's faithfulness on his mind. And he wants to sing and proclaim God's faithfulness and loving kindness forever and ever to all generations. He wants to worship God. But contrast verses 1 through 4 with the text I want to look at. Verse 49. He's got loving kindness on his mind. He's got faithfulness on his mind And so he asks, verse 49, Where are your former loving kindnesses, O Lord, which you swore to David in your faithfulness? Remember, O Lord, the reproach of your servants, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. What happened? What changed? That he can go from saying, I want to sing about God's faithfulness and God's loyal love forever to, where is that love, Lord? Where is your faithfulness? What could have happened in the life of this man and in the life of his people that we have such a, such a shocking change of events? And we go from one extreme to the other. How can this man, Ethan, in the midst of what we will discover to be absolute national tragedy, national catastrophe, how can he worship God in the midst of catastrophe and do it in a transcendent way that is Psalm 89, one of the most important psalms in the Psalter, and it closes the third book of the Psalter and asks us to think about what it's talking about. How, do, how can he worship God in that way, dealing the circumstances that he's in. That's the question I want to ask as well. What does transcendent look like, transcendent worship look like in the midst of trial? We get three, three responses that we can have to trials, three responses to troubles in the midst of those circumstances that give us an idea of how we can do transcendent worship. 
The first is found in verse 49. The first is that you have to remember. Remember who God is. Remember his character. You could potentially conclude that this man, because he went from one extreme to absolutely the other, that maybe this man didn't have a very high view of God. Maybe he had a low view of God. Maybe he just, he didn't trust God's faithfulness. He didn't really understand who God was or he wouldn't have written what he wrote. That's absolutely not the case. This man has a rich, robust theology proper and he brought it in And it was the fuel that drove what he wrote because it's the reason why he's he's perplexed. He knows that God has been faithful. He knows that he has promised and, and yet he is absolutely perplexed. What could have happened to you, Lord, that the circumstances that we're in are now taking place? And take a look at verse 49. He says, where are your former loving kindnesses, O Lord, which you swore? He had known, he remembered that God had made a promise. And that idea of swearing, you have to keep it in connection. In the Old Testament, particularly when we are talking about God in the Old Testament, when God swears, it is of, it's, it's always connected with a covenant. He has made a covenant. He has sworn something. And swearing was very important in the ancient Near East. When you were a person that was making an oath or a promise, you always swore by something that was higher than yourself, something, and what's higher than man but the gods? And so the people in the ancient Near East would swear by their gods, or in the case of Israel, they would swear by Yahweh himself. But who is above God? Who is higher than the Lord? That he could swear by somebody else. That's exactly what... The writer of Hebrews says, in Hebrews 6.13, he says, For when God had made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. God swears by himself, and we see it again and again in the Old Testament. Isaiah 45.23, he swears by himself. Isaiah 62.8, by his right hand, his outstretched arm, kind of an idiomatic way of saying, by God's sovereign power and his sovereign strength, he swears to accomplish what he has promised. Jeremiah 44.26, by his great name, that he has upheld. It is what he cares about, his name, so that it's a sin, a great sin, to take his name in vain. Well, he swears by that name. And even in our own psalm, verse 35 of Psalm 89, the psalmist says, quoting God himself, once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. God cannot swear by anybody but himself, and so he has made a promise And he has backed that promise up with his own character. And Ethan knows that. Because in our text, verse 49, where are your former loving kindnesses, O Lord, which you swore to David in your what? In your faithfulness. The same word that he extolled in the first four verses. The same word that is repeated seven times throughout this psalm. That he wants to sing about 
forever, that is what God has promised. He has backed up his oath to David with his own faithfulness. And he knows that. Ethan knows that. He understands who the Lord is. He understands he is the sovereign, faithful God of Israel. And he has sworn to David loyal love. I don't like that word loving kindness. It's kind of a hybrid word that we, we use in English. The word in Hebrew is chesed. Everybody say it with me. Chesed. If you're not spitting it, say it with me. Say it with me. Got to get a little Hebrew for you. Chesed. Okay? If you're not saying it, you're not spitting on the person in front of you, you're not saying it right. It's, it's in the guttural. Okay? Chesed. It's, it's not just love. It's not just as the ESV talks about steadfast uh, mercy or, or kindness. It's not just that. It is covenantal in nature. It's when you swear to somebody and you make a promise to them of love, that promise comes with loyalty. It comes with commitment. God is a loyal God. And he has made a covenant with David and he has promised him loyalty. What has he promised him? Well, all we have to do is go back to some of the verses in this psalm and we see exactly what is on Ethan's mind. Turn back to verse 19 for a moment. Verse 19 says, Once you spoke in vision to your godly ones and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. That's 1 Samuel 16 right there. The anointing, the choosing of David to be Israel's king, to be Israel's anointed one. And what does he promise to David? What are these loyal love acts that God has promised to David? Well, first off, he promised David protection. Verse 21. With whom my hand will be established. My arm also will strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. But I will crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. One of the things that was promised to David was a kind of rulership that was protected by divine sovereignty. That David's kingdom would be established and there would be nothing that could thwart it. But it's not just that. He had promised him power. Verse 24, my faithfulness and my loyal love will be with him. And in my name, his horn will be exalted. I shall also set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. David will have a kingdom that, in some respects, some commentary, commentators say is a universal kingdom. This is talking about from sea to sea, from coast to coast. David's reign will be worldwide. Absolute power over every other kingdom. And not only that, but he will have prominence over every other kingdom. Verse 26, he will cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Verse 27, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So he's promised protection and power and prominence and above all, for our psalm, permanence. Verse 28, 
my loyal love, I will keep for him forever. And my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. So David will have a kingdom that will be protected from its enemies. He will have power in a worldwide kingdom eventually. He will have prominence over every other kingdom that's living and he will have a kingdom that lasts forever. And now the psalmist, knowing all of that, knowing who God is as the covenant-keeping God of Israel is asking the question, where are your former acts of loyal love, O Lord, which you swore to David in your faithfulness? Where are they? I, I saw them in the past, but where are they now? He knows God's character. He knows what God has promised, and this is why he is so perplexed. He does not understand what's going on. And I'm convinced for us as, as, as believers, the greatest stumbling block to our transcendent worship in the midst of tribulation is ignorance. Ignorance of who God is. Ignorance of what God has promised and what God has done. We fail so often to understand the character of God because true and acceptable worship must come from the heart. I mean, that's, that's clear. We see that from John 4 when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well. He said, worship must be done in spirit, right? It must come from the heart, but that heart has to have a fuel that drives it. What is that fuel? Truth what Leo is going to preach on next week. How well do you know God? Because your understanding of who God is, your true understanding of his character, his person, his work, his nature, is not tested when everything is going well. It's tested when everything is falling apart. That is when the test of your worship comes into play. Can you worship the transcendent God In the midst of that, you have to know who he is. You have to recall. You have to remember. As A.W. Tozer so uh, aptly put, as he does virtually all things, he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He's absolutely right. But I would modify that and it would say, in particular for us, what comes into your mind when you think about God in trials. That's the most important thing about you. It's easy. It's easy to remember who God is when everything is going well, when all seems to be at rest. It's when the difficulties come. The testing of our faith, as James puts it. That's when the true test comes. And I lament at the at the ignorance of the church at large. Uh, the evangelical church, not understanding who God is, being satisfied with a superficial, low understanding of God that they've missed the transcendent. They've focused so much, and we focus so much on, the, on God's 
imminence, his, his, his dealings with us, that we forget the transcendence of God. We forget his loftiness. We forget his magnificence and his majesty. We forget who he is. We can't worship God in truth if we get, forget who God is. You want to have transcendent worship in the midst of trouble. It starts with remembering who God is. That's not all, though. You remember who God is, but you also have to reveal. Reveal your heart to God. Be real with God. Because if you look at our psalm in verse 50, this man was very real, very transparent. He hid nothing. Verse 50, remember, O Lord, the reproach of your servant, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples. This is personal for him. Yes, it's happening to his people. It's happening to the whole of Israel. Israel is experiencing something awful. And they're experiencing insults and disgrace and reproach from the nations. But in addition to that, it's personal for Ethan. Because it feels to him like he as whoever he was, someone in the royal court, whether it was a Levite or a, or a, um, a wise man in, in Solomon's court or whatever, that he understood he was bearing the brunt of this. All the many peoples, all the nations are taunting us. And he also understood that as Yahweh's servants, when a reproach falls on the servant, guess who that reproach is really on? It's on the master. So he was very much just as, as uh, concerned about God's honor as he was about his own. He was afraid God was being reproached in the midst of catastrophe. And so he says to God, remember. It's a command. It's an imperative. Remember. And it's not just a, please, Lord, recall to your mind what you've promised. No, when, when, we, when you talk about God remembering, particularly when people call on God to remember throughout the Old Testament, it is a call for action. We are in distress We are being taunted. Our enemies are insulting us, Lord. Your people, your covenant chosen people are under assault. Act. Come. Fulfill your obligation that you have promised to us, Lord. I don't know how long we can stand. And the biggest characteristic that I see in this particular verse, you know what it is? It's honesty. This man is very honest with God, very, very bold, much bolder than I think we feel comfortable being with God. We have bought into a lie that the happy Christian is the spiritual Christian. That, um, that we somehow cannot ever approach God with as much boldness and gusto as this man does and, and demand a hearing Lord, listen, look, look at the situation, open up your eyes and see that we have a problem. Have you ever talked to God that way? Have you ever come to church on a Sunday morning with something weighty on your heart and begging God, Lord, open up your eyes and see my situation? It makes us very uncomfortable because we have 
I think, an adulterated understanding of what it means to be joyful. We talked about joy just a few weeks ago in Philippians 4. Rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice, but that rejoice, joy that that we're commanded to have is not the same thing as a superficial smile. God wants us to be real. Because guess what? You can hide your heart from each other and say, it's okay when it's not, but God knows what's on your heart. He knows. He wants you to be real. Ethan, in the midst of worship, in the midst of writing a psalm to be sung in worship to God, he is real with him. Lord, act now. And, and this isn't, this isn't uh, unique to Ethan. You could go back to the very previous psalm, Psalm 88. Go there for a moment because I just want to show you this. Psalm 88, probably one of the most blackest psalms in the Psalter. And it starts out in verse 1 with the only glimmer of light that you will ever find in this. Verse 1, O Lord, the God of my salvation. That's, that's the only ray of sunshine in an otherwise very, very dark psalm because by the end of this psalm, in verse 18, this is how it ends. You have removed lover and friend far from me. My, my acquaintances are in darkness. How's that for bleakness? How's that for reality? You turn to Psalm 137. Go there for a moment. Just a few psalms ahead of us. Psalm 137. Another absolutely black psalm. Written by a musician who was sitting on the banks of uh, the rivers of Babylon. And he's looking back weeping because he sees the smoke rising from Jerusalem, which has just been destroyed by the Babylonians. And his captors want him and the other musicians in their party to start singing songs from their country. And he's saying, how in the world could I sing a song of Zion while I'm watching Zion burn? May God have my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. May I lose the use of my hand so I can't play my instrument anymore if I ever, if I ever sing songs of Zion while I'm watching the city burn. And then he goes off and he calls for justice. Justice on the people who had done this. I mean, it's really amazing to look at how this psalm ends. Verse 8. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one, how blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. And then this shocking, shocking statement. Verse 9. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rocks, just like you did to us. A call for divine justice. And that's how the psalm ends. These are psalms that are in the minor key. And I started wondering, how how many psalms, how many hymns, how many songs do we have in our hymn book, in in our repertoire that we sing that are minor. 
Songs that represent the reality. Songs like Psalm 89, like Psalm 88, like Psalm 137, that deal with the reality of life, but they deal with it in a real way, still worshiping God. I can't think of any. We need them. We need some minor key songs. Because that is the worship sometimes. The only way that we really feel like we can worship genuinely when we are experiencing the kind of tragedies that we just talked about. Oklahoma, Texas, Boston, Connecticut. How can we come and sing a song, a happy-go-lucky, you know, clap-your-hand kind of song when the heart is heavy and you're saying like with the psalmist of Psalm 88, You've removed lover and friend far from me. My acquaintances are in darkness. And yet, you realize that we're reading the very words of the Holy Spirit inspired through the experiences and through the minds and the hearts of the people who penned these in worship. And they ended up by the sovereignty of God in Israel's hymn book. Israel sung these hymns and worshiped God with them. We need hymns like this. Hymns that remind us that life is difficult. That man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. We have too few. But we have to be willing to be real with God if real worship is going to happen. Otherwise, it's superficial. And we are just fooling ourselves, not God. We have to remember who God is. We have to reveal our hearts to him. And thirdly, we have to rest. Rest in God's sovereign plan. And it might not sound like that is what Ethan was doing, but it's exactly what he was doing. I'll start reading back again, Psalm 89 verse 50, and run it through to the end to help you see this. He says, Remember, O Lord, the reproach of your servants, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed I mean, it's not just your people that are in trouble, Lord. It's not just your people who are being insulted. And it's not just me, the psalmist. It's your own anointed one, the descendant of David, the one that you have anointed to come after him, the one you said would always be on David's throne. What has happened? Is he thinking that God is out of control? that God really doesn't have handle the situation, that God has somehow lost his omnipotence and all these things are happening, as the open theist would say, and God's just scrambling to figure out what the plan is to get it back. I, I don't think so. He knows exactly what's going on. Because all the way back in verse 38, we see what's happened. Remember he was singing of the loyal love of God forever, of his faithfulness to all generations. Well, by ver- verse 30, 38, This is what he has to say. But you have cast off and rejected. 
You have been full of wrath against your anointed. You have spurned the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown in the dust. You have broken down all his walls. You have brought his strongholds to ruin. All who pass along the way plunder him. He has become a reproach to his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have turned back the edge of his sword and have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to see and cast his throne to the ground. You have shortened the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Salah, which is a way of saying, think about that. Whenever you come across Salah, it's, not, it's, a, it's a musical interlude, but it's meant as a way of having music play while the congregation thinks about what they've just sung. And I hope that you do that when we have our musical interludes. The bridges of songs are not meant to just enjoy the music, They are meant for us to contemplate the theology that we just sung. And here, we've got a lot to think about. God has sworn loyal love to David and his faithfulness. All of those things, the power, the the, the prominence, the protection, the, the, the permanence of the Davidic dynasty has seemed to collapse. Everything has collapsed. This is beyond any national tragedy, any national disaster that we have ever experienced. And we look back to September 11th and we rally behind that as, as a a point for our nation in which we experience tragedy, but we're going to rise up above it. Beloved, that was nothing compared to the tragedy that befell Israel. We don't really understand. We, we're not given a lot of historical context about what this is talking about. If, if it's one of the Ethans mentioned either during the Solomonic or, or Davidic dynasty or reigns, then it could be that he's talking about when the whole kingdom split and Rehoboam and Jeroboam's uh, departure from each other when, when we finally had not a united empire but a north and a south. He could be talking about the death of Josiah in the valley of Megiddo, the the last true faithful Davidic king who died in battle against Egypt. It could be that, and they're lamenting that, but I really think he is talking about the same event that was discussed in Psalm 137. Jerusalem is destroyed. There is a permanence to this language. Like nothing is going to be quite the same again. All of those, those... Promises that were made of protection and provision and permanence and prominence, all of that seems to have disappeared. He, he answers every one of them. It's as if God has, has said, you know what, never mind. And that's what he's feeling. What has happened to the promise of God? And yet he knows. How many times did he say, you have done this, you have done this? He knows it's God's doing. He knows God was sovereign in this because he knows that God was being faithful to what he had promised. Because just a few short verses earlier, in verse 30, right after all of those promises to David, there's one provision. Verse 30, If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. He understood what was going on here. This was divine sovereignty at work. Because the nation follows after its leaders, right? 
When the king is faithful, the people were faithful. That's the reason that Hezekiah and Josiah's reforms could work because they had, they had maintained their fidelity to the covenant. But Manasseh, that was it. And then all the unfaithful Davidic kings who spurned the covenant and God chastened them, chastened the whole nation because they followed after them. This was God's doing and he understands that. And the psalm ends without any, any kind of closure, any kind of, of resolution to this problem. I mean, we see in verse 52, blessed be the Lord forever, amen and amen. But that really is a closure to the entire book three of the Psalter. Every single book of the Psalter, book one, two, three, four, and five, closes with a similar, a similar doxology saying, glory be to God, in this case, blessed be Yahweh forever, amen and amen. They all close that way. This is more of an editorial understanding that we have come to the conclusion of something big. But the psalm doesn't, doesn't resolve at all. And this man, Ethan, who is seemingly old and wondering whether or not we're ever going to see the fulfillment of God's promise. Verse 46 makes that clear. How long, O Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? Remember what my lifespan is. I'm an old man. If it doesn't happen now, I might miss it, and I want to see your promise fulfilled. I want to see the reality of all that you've sworn And yet I am old. For what vanity you have created all the sons of man. What what man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Think about that. This man wants to see the fulfillment, but he comes to the end of it and there is nothing. No resolution. No closure. And I think that's on purpose. I think that's on purpose. There's one thing that that we learn from Psalm 89. Life does not always have closure. It doesn't. It's the reality, beloved. It's the reality of it. And this man lived in the, the light of the promise of the Davidic king, but he never got to see the fulfillment of that promise. We know who that person is. The final Davidic king, who is it? It's Lord Jesus Christ. Come to rule, come to reign, come to die. But yet we're still waiting for the final revelation of the final Davidic king as well. We too, even in the midst of that as well as our own personal circumstances, we live in the light of the promise of passages like Romans 8.28. In fact, turn there. If you have your Bible, it's a good place to end. Romans 8.28, we live in the light of that promise, but we live in the shadow of its fulfillment. I mean, this is, of course, a psalm that you all are very familiar with, or not a psalm, a a verse. Romans 8.28, Steve read it just earlier. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to God. To his purposes. And we use that as a way of encouraging people who are in difficult circumstances, but I think that we have um, somewhat stripped that whole promise from its context. 
Because a lot of the times, I think that we're looking for some kind of temporal good, some kind of God make it good now in my life. Let me see what is this, uh, this whole goodness going to be about right now. But the context seems to, to uh, contradict that, that assumption because if you look back in verse 18, Paul writes, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which is to be revealed to us. What is he talking about? He's not talking about some kind of temporal, earthly understanding of how God's going to make everything good in your life right now. He's going to use the the bad stuff. He's going to use the the trials, the circumstances, and and you're going to see it all unfold. No, he's got something much grander in mind. He's got eternity in mind. And we can see that even in verse 29 because right after he says that God works all things together for good for those who love God who are called according to his purpose, he says this, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Predestined for what? To be conformed to the image of who? His son. That's the point of Romans 8. That's the goal. The sanctification of the believer for the, for the final goal of being like Christ. And when is that going to happen? In this life? No. Because he goes on in verse 30 and says, Those who he foreknew, he also predestined. And those he predestined, he also called. And those, these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. That's the point. Sometimes we are going to have to learn to live in the shadow of the fulfillment of what God has promised because he's got much greater things in mind. Sometimes in the midst of the circumstances, in the midst of the heartache, in the midst of the trials and the persecutions, whatever it is, the fulfillment, the good, we might not see until the kingdom. We might not see until God has completed his good work in us. And until then, we are right where the psalmist is. And I like how one commentator put it, closure. Closure in life has its liabilities. Because if we had closure to this, to this psalm, it would make it very, very historical. You know, it's just something that happened in the past. You know, we moved on. No, we have not moved on from Psalm 89. We haven't moved on from Psalm 88. It's the reality of life. And yet he was able to find the means to worship God in the midst of this incredible tragedy. How? He remembered who God was. He remembered his character. He remembered his promises. He remembered what God had said. And he revealed his heart to God. He was open. His heart gushed forth, calling God to act in his faithfulness. And he rested in the fact that God was sovereign and he is not. And he left it absolutely open. What is your view of God? Do you have a transcendent view of God? Are you willing to be real with him? Are you willing and ready to rest in his sovereignty. That is 
the steps towards a transcendent worship that transcends any kind of experience that we can have. Because if we look back, I talked to you about John 16:33, Jesus' words, that man is, you know, in this world we have tribulation. I want to finish that, that verse. These things, he says, I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world.